Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is the Reverend Porter Case Taylor. Porter is an Anglican priest residing in Kansas with his wife, Rebecca, and their three sons. He's also a PhD student at the University of Aberdeen. He also authors the Liturgical Theologian, a blog on the Pathios Evangelical Channel, and is passionate about liturgy, the sacraments, and ecclesiology. I give you Porter Case Taylor. Porter, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. And you are an Anglican rector, a priest, and you are also editing a volume on one of my favorite theologians, right? Alexander Schmemann. I am. I am indeed. Um, yeah, I'm a supply priest right now in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, um, working on the PhD, and was fortunate enough to um, get a group of scholars together to come up with a volume honoring Father Schmemann. Um, hopefully, it will be out later this year. Awesome. Well, this weekend is the second Sunday after Easter, and it is statistically the lowest attended church Sunday of the year. Right. So just getting the discouragement (laughs) out on the front end for our listeners, if you're preaching, don't feel bad if there's not a big group in attendance. It's not your fault. Exactly. But our first reading is from the book of Acts in the season in between Easter and Pentecost, right? Our first readings, uh, instead of coming from the Old Testament, come from the book of Acts. Right. We're looking at, you know, the new chapter of redemptive history. So here we've got Acts 4, verses 32 through 35, where everybody's got of one heart and soul, and there's no private property. Socialism, bad. Um, <laughs> uh, but everything was held in common, and you have the apostles preaching uh, about the resurrection and grace is upon everybody and people are sharing their resources and believing this is uh you know this is a great picture of of the redemptive fruit of the resurrected jesus right absolutely um i mean you get to see the way the community is supposed to be living and acting uh you know but i always find it difficult um getting this text on uh, the first Sunday after after Easter, because you have to remember that we're four chapters ahead of where we really are chronologically. We kind of jump past um, all of the you know resurrection appearances. We jump past Pentecost, and here we kind of join a story already in motion. Um, and so it's really exciting to see the disciples at work and the Holy Spirit empowering them to go out and kind of fulfill the command that Jesus gave uh, that we celebrate on Monday Thursday um, but it is a bit of a bit of a change up compared to where we were on Easter Sunday yeah why do they do that you know I think that the the focus being um, with the risen Jesus um, that at least for Easter tide we're going to get away from the Old Testament and focus on what is going on in the in the book of Acts. 
Um, and then obviously you have the, the gospel lessons where we're looking very specifically at Jesus's resurrected appearances. Um, but I think it's the, the lectionary's way of trying to keep things in focus here and keep the, the momentum going. This is what happens after, after resurrection. Um, it just makes for uh, an interesting moment or two while you're preaching to try and remember and remind your people, oh, hey, by the way, we're still going to come back to this whole Pentecost thing in like 50 days. Yeah, and it's interesting too. this, like, you think of Ephesians and this notion that, that part of the mystery of the gospel is this r- uniting of humanity, right. you know, Jew and Chinese. And here you have this picture of, you know, all of those who believe are of one heart and soul and th- and their possessions are you know, belong one to another. I mean, it's, it seems to be this picture of the fruit of um, the death and resurrection of Jesus is this, is really, the, we're getting a picture of new humanity, right? Absolutely. New humanity, um, the, this new community that's come out of um, a, a moment in time where they're by far the minority, they're in, you know, under Roman occupation, and they're doing life differently. Uh, there's no coincidence that we get this, um, you know, a week and a half after um, Monday Thursday when Jesus commands them to love one another. Um, and now we see this happening. Like, this is what Easter life looks like. Um, and you have to imagine how countercultural it would be to see this little group of people who, you know, are believing in a crucified God, if you will, um, going so far out of their way to live differently, to sharing possessions, and um, to being this group of people that isn't identified by some sort of race or nationality, but by their common bond in Christ. Um, I mean, it's a really beautiful picture. You said one love, one life, when it's one need in the night. One love, we get to share it. It leaves you, baby, if you don't care for it. Speaking of love, let's go to First John, right? One of the great epistles, uh, right? You know, of uh, with love, it's the heart of its theme, and also, you know, it's interesting because you have the author here saying that that he's in First John one 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 through two two. It's kind of a long reading for an epistle, but um, that. You know, we declare to you from the beginning what we've heard, what we've seen, and there's this, all this emphasis on the fact that they've seen and heard Jesus, right, and and that He is the one, this Jesus in the flesh, that is the source of forgiveness of sins. That He is our advocate. You know, if we confess that we sin, but there's this emphasis is seeming to be right. There's opponents that have kind of wandered into this. Johannine community that are that seem to be tugging a thread here, saying maybe that you know the the proclamation of the earth, the incarnate incarnate fleshy Jesus. There's something not quite right about it. Right, right. Well, I mean, again, if you think about it, you know, the whole of this story hinges upon the fact that you have testimony from women who, you know, weren't going to be the most widely heard or listened to, and testimony from this band of disciples who hail from a region that was largely forgotten about and ignored. And they're proclaiming this most radical thing that this 
you know, itinerant preacher was crucified, wiped out by Rome, and yet he actually, you know, rose from the dead and, and is alive. Um, and so these opponents, I think, to the gospel are trying to disrupt in any way they can the the handing on or passing along of this message, because anything that they can do to cause doubt in the story itself or the witness um, will obviously discredit um, what they're all saying, what the disciples are claiming and uh, in this new community. And I, I think it's a beautiful picture as well of seeing a group of people being able to pass along that which they were able to see and touch and hear and experience in their their whole you know five senses and not just like this feeling inside their heart like they can actually say like no we we were there you know we're going to get to Thomas but Thomas can say like I, I put my finger in his hands and his side and can you know say without a doubt that this is real you know how like how important do you think it is to know the background of the opponents. I mean, this is a lot of ink is spilled on this, right? In the theological world, like the, you know, are, are, are they of this party of this ideology? Like, do you, do you think like that's important for understanding the text? You know, is it, you know, is it secondary? I think it's important, but I think that it would be really easy um, to to lose sight of what's going on here and focus almost extensively on that. Um, I think we could do a lot of background on who the opponents were and where they're coming from. Um, but to me, the the message here in First John is like this is this is gospel. This is the Paschal mystery that we are proclaiming, and I'd rather focus on that while giving you know maybe spending a line or two in a sermon on on opponents rather than the other way around. If that makes sense. So if I were going to spend a line or two, this is what I would do. Yeah. But this is not me. This is from Peter Lightheart's commentary on 1 John, which is called Behind From Behind the Veil. And he actually thinks that, you know, that most people think that there's some form of Gnosticism going on here. Right. He thinks that there could be something also like the Galatian opponents, the Judaizing kind of party. And he says this. It's very interesting and provocative and just insightful. He says that the apostles touched and saw him, touched the Holy One of Israel. In this age, God opens his purposes to us without veiling, without secrets. All that was whispered is proclaimed from the housetops. All that was in the shadows is brought to the light. Judaizing attempts to maintain the age of secrecy that Jesus brought to an end. So does Gnosticism. Hmm. Above all, in the Old Covenant, Yahweh had hid himself in a cloud behind the billowing cloud-like veils of the tabernacle, behind the oil-wood doors of the most holy place. But he hides no longer. Judaizers do not believe that, and neither do Gnostics. Judaizing is a theology of the intact veil, and so is Gnosticism. Both deny the rapturous declaration of the opening verses of 1 John, that God emerged from the twilight and shone like the sun, invisible, audible, tangible flesh. Yeah, that'll preach. Yeah, I, I, that's an inter- striking that sort of the kind of Gnosticism and this kind of legalism you know that you see in Galatians are flip sides of a similar coin. I, yeah. I, that's a that's an interesting thought that it's sort of the over spiritualizing and the over religionizing right. are both opponents to the actual incarnate enfleshed gospel of the incarnate one. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that coming here where it does in the lectionary is really 
useful because we're at this point where we you know, read the Easter story and the crucifixion and the fact that the veil is torn. And we are going to get to a point where we're going through um, the lesson with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they don't see Jesus and, and recognize him until he reveals himself and opens their eyes to him through the breaking of bread and then explains everything from Scripture. And, and so that's where we are now in, in, in Acts, in First John. Now in 2018, we're living in this time where there is no veil. You know, God has revealed himself most fully to us through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're pointing to, not some sort of special knowledge or, you know, if you, if you do enough or know enough, then you kind of get in on the secret. But like, no, Jesus has revealed to us who God is, and we can we can point to that. Speaking of Jesus, we got the gospel reading here from John twenty nineteen through 31, where you've got this upper room appearance, you know, this, this cloistered room appearance after the resurrection where Jesus comes to the disciples. And Thomas, uh, you know, he, you know, well, there's two appearances, right? You know, um, there's one where Thomas isn't there. Now Thomas is there. Right. And he wants to see the nails, you know, the, the nail wounds, the scars, the holes, and which then elicits his faith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to remember that there are two um, moments here where Jesus is seen in this passage, but we also already have, uh, you know, the women and Peter seeing Jesus in the garden or outside of the tomb. And so you have Thomas, who is kind of the last one to to know, the last one to see. And to me, at least, it makes sense that he'd want to be able to verify with, you know, putting his hands on the, you know, on Jesus' hands or his, you know, side to be able to say, like, I have heard this testimony from these others, but I, I want to see and experience that for myself. Um, and he, he's not as I look at it, he's not really rebuked. He's not punished for for wanting to experience it that way. I mean, he's, he's even invited, you know, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Like, you are welcome to do this. And then he yeah, has... Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, like, we call... There's the moniker Doubting Thomas. Yeah. I don't understand why he's not called Believing Thomas. Right. <laughs> That's so strange. I mean, we we focus so much on the first half of that encounter where, you know, he wants to see it and he won't believe and very little attention is paid to the response of faith afterwards where he responds my lord and my god. Like that, that's where he, that's where I would love to see sermons go is when we encounter the risen Jesus, this is the response. Yeah, it's interesting they asked Charles Hodge when he got back from Germany if Schleiermacher was a Christian. He says, yes, not by the virtue of everything he's written theologically, but I've seen him sing the hymns. And anyone who claims Christ is God is, is a Christian. And I've seen him sing that. <laughs> Devoutly. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, you know, I think that um, being able to invite others into seeking 
seeking an encounter with with the risen Lord. I mean, obviously, that's what we come to to worship for on a Sunday anyway. We come to worship God, and there we encounter Christ in the Word um, with Scripture being proclaimed. We encounter Christ in the table with the Eucharist, um, and, and there's got to be a response of faith um, coming out of that. And, and Thomas's response of faith, every time I have to read that lesson on a Sunday morning, my, my voice catches before I get to my Lord and my God, because it's just so powerful to me in that moment um, to see him respond that way after having been able to experience Christ like that. Yeah. And I think like there's two temptations in the modern church, right? We either demonize doubt or valorize it. Yep. Like, like you can't doubt or you're out or unless you're doubting and cynical and double-minded all the time, then you're not really mature. But like, like most places in the Bible here, Jesus engages the doubt. Yep. Like it's not valorized or demonized. It is accepted and, and, and engaged. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, for the most part, doubt is just kind of a normal human experience on on whatever issue. And rather than, like you said, praising it or demonizing it, just being able to accept it as there is doubt, here is the encounter, and now we can kind of move on in whatever direction that takes. And you see that with Jesus. Um He's not punishing Thomas at all here. I think that he's actually very loving with Thomas's response, uh, you know, inviting Thomas to experience him. And I think that part of the opportunity here for a preacher um, or for a church in general is to create an environment where it's okay to doubt or to have questions or to be angry or to be certain or to be sad or whatever, instead of qualifying any of those emotions or experiences. You know, the, one of the best sermons I've ever heard on this text was actually preached in a Presbyterian church Uh-oh. on Easter Sunday years ago. And it was uh, about that time James Charlesworth from Princeton had come out with this book arguing that the beloved disciple, of course, who's not named, was Thomas. Mm. And he makes some good arguments. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's persuasive. I mean, it's not a sort of uh, you know, hands down, self-evident thing. But there, you know, he makes some persuasive arguments, and he says that you know that if the beloved disciple is Thomas, that and and he makes a case that he's kind of a scrupulous, observant um, Jew. That like if he had run in the temple in the tomb with Peter, he would have stayed away, being unclean. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that he was away from the fellowship. But then you know where he turned it, and again, he wasn't preaching this the Sunday after Easter. He was preaching it. Easter to a packed house, a large uh, PCUSA church. Right. And he said, you know, it's so hard to come back to the fellowship after you've been gone for a while, that people had experiences that you were not a part of. And, you know, imagine the disciples coming back and saying, we had this experience and and Thomas is at it. But he's, he invited all these people who probably don't come to church that much, right? All these people who are on the rolls, but don't come, you know, come back to the fellowship, you know, for whatever reason, You've left like here's, you know, and I think about that, that, you know, this, this first John talking about, you know, the, the power of what's going on in this early fledgling church community is the fellowship of the resurrected Lord, you know, and that invitation still holds true, you know, for every hearer, right, of the gospel readings and the, the word that, you know, you're invited to draw into um, this fellowship with the, fr- the resurrected friend of sinners. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that's what we get, at least for for me and my 
my preaching. I, I mean, I love the collect every Sunday. I don't care if people think it doesn't go or it doesn't work. I am always a big fan of looking at the collect um, as I'm getting ready to preach, and it's it's right there. I mean, you know, who in the Paschal mystery established the new covenant of reconciliation? Grant that all who have been reborn into that fellowship of Christ's body, like that. That's the invitation right there. I mean, it is, we are after Easter, and we are inviting those who were there on Easter Sunday and those who were not to come and experience Christ anew and afresh here on this Sunday morning. Um, and then our response after that encounter is to go out and profess our faith through, you know, actions, lives, etc. But it, it's, it's right there. Let's, let us be reconciled to, to God through Christ. Well, blessings to you, Porter, as you proclaim that message. Thank you. You as out well. In the, out in, you know, Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, a city which I love. Yeah. You know, I love, I love Pittsburgh as well. need to go back and get some Primani Brothers. Um, I love those sandwiches. But for now, I'm in Kansas City. Oh, that's right. That's right. I forgot. You're in the diocese of it. Yeah, yeah just City. the diocese. I'm an, odd, I'm an odd duck. So I'm in Kansas City where we had snow on Easter. Um, well, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, you know, uh, a Northeastern elite like me, Pittsburgh, it's all the Midwest. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. Thanks so much. And we'll have you back on. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Porter for coming on the podcast and thanks again to you for listening to Snacks. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.